1: Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Chris Heffer, author of All Bullshit and Lies, Insincerity, Irresponsibility, and the Judgment of Untruthfulness, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Language, Chris. Thanks for having
0: me. Um, Thanks, Malcolm. Uh, Thank you very much for inviting me. This is uh, a very um, enjoyable opportunity.
1: Great. Well, let's start with a, a relatively recent news item. Of course, the political news these days moves pretty fast, but I thought this one might motivate a little bit what you're doing with this book. Uh, and and it's has to do with the United States president, Donald Trump, who sat down for a series of um, recorded interviews with a journalist, Bob Woodward. And uh, he was on, on the record privately with Woodward saying that COVID is more deadly than even your strenuous flu. Uh, and that it was difficult to address because it goes through the air. But then in um, February, a few days after that uh, interview, at a press conference, he said, well, now the virus we're talking about, um, you know, a lot of people think that it goes away in April with the heat and that we're in great shape and, and so on. And so he came in for some criticism on that. Um, but I think the thing that's relevant for your book is the way that the focus had been on whether or not he lied did he lie to the American people? Uh, A reporter asked him, why did you lie? And he says, well, I didn't lie. I said, we had to be calm. We can't be panicked. So as I understand it, your book's thesis is that um, in in some ways we need to move uh, away from or beyond framing things just in terms of whether a politician like Trump lied or didn't lie to a broader understanding of untruthfulness. So um, maybe you could say a little bit about how your book might have us think about cases like this and what it is you're trying to do with these kinds of uh, examples of political discourse. Uh,
0: yes. Thank you, Malcolm. I mean, I think this is a, a an excellent example. And um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to spend a little bit of time going through it uh, because I think it's a, it's a fantastic example of how I think we're getting things wrong in the media in particular. Um, and in this focus on lying at all costs, so what I'm trying primarily to do in this book is, is to provide a toolkit for analysing those many cases where people are called out for lying and bullshit. And I'm suggesting that if you analyse these cases systematically, they tend to be more complex and nuanced than they might at first appear. Um, so the the latest revelations about Trump in Bob Woodward's um, book, Rage, uh, which I think came out a couple of weeks ago, and they are um, particularly interesting because... After its publication, as he noted, the mainstream media fixated on calling Trump out for lying on the deadliness of COVID. But if you actually look at the NPR's um, timeline of what Trump said in public in February and early March, what he says, it stresses how few cases there currently are, that those infected are recovering, that he's cooperating with the Chinese. He says that he has things under control and he hopes that the virus will miraculously disappear with the warm weather. But at the beginning of February, as he noted, he said to Woodward in one of his private interviews that COVID was, quote, deadly stuff and that it was, quote, more deadly than even your strenuous flu. And then in another interview with Woodward on the 19th of March, he said, quote, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. Now, the important thing is this, whether you see this as a confession that he brazenly lied to the public about the deadliness of the virus, or well, you see this as a perfectly legitimate explanation for why he played down the risks of the virus, depends almost entirely on whether you fall into the Trump camp or the anti-Trump camp. And almost no one falls between these two camps. So, But, um, but as long as we judge lying and other forms of untruthfulness in these highly partisan ways, we're going to fail in our civic discourse. Now, I'd wager that most of the listeners to this podcast, like myself, are going to be in the anti-Trump camp. So unless you want to jump in at this point, Malcolm, I'll quickly point out why, in fact, I think that Trump didn't, in fact, lie about the deadliness of the virus in those early statements on COVID.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great place to start. Why don't you do that?
0: Okay, so what Trump doesn't say at any point in those early days is that COVID is not a deadly virus. If he had said at any point, don't worry, this this isn't a deadly virus, it's just like the flu, and almost everyone recovers from it, then he would have been lying because he would have been explicitly asserting something he knew to be false. Instead, he gave true numbers, which were low at the time, said they were recovering, which they were at the time, and hoped that it would all go away with the warm weather, which was commonly believed at the time. Overconfident as he is, he probably also believed that he had things under control. Now, Trump was certainly being insincere. What he did do is that he withheld from the public the fact that the virus was so deadly and could cause a pandemic. He could also argue that he misled the public when he said things like, just say calm, it will go away, because the public were led to draw the inference that the virus might not be particularly deadly. As he admits himself, he was definitely downplaying the potential impact of the virus. But interestingly, so was Anthony Fauci and some of the other leading scientists at the time. Downplaying is a risk, as a a risk is sometimes a justified form of insincerity, and so we need to put it in in the balance. But while we're willing to accept that Fauci and co were downplaying the deadliness of the virus to avoid causing panic, we're not willing to even entertain that possibility when it comes to Trump. So I think the real problem in this case is not that Trump was insincere per se, but that to downplay the danger of the virus was a terrible, terrible misjudgment in the circumstances. Leaders who handle the pandemic well, like Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, emphasised the grave danger of the virus, but reassured the public that they were doing everything in their power to fight it. We all understand this now, even Trump. So when the downplaying quote was splashed across the media a couple of weeks ago, he felt forced to backtrack and produce another classic Trump quote. I didn't downplay it. I actually, in many ways, I upplayed it in terms of action. My action was very strong, and again, contrary to, the, uh, but again, contrary to the media reports, because again, the, the media all, uh, uh, splashed headlines saying that he was lying about the fact that he was downplaying and so on. Um, he's not lying when he says this, but he's using a classic misleading strategy of equivocation. He's basically equivocating on the word downplay. In March, he's clearly using downplay to talk about his verbal strategies. He communicates with the public, but here he's explicitly using it to talk about his actions rather than his words. He's only lying in this case if he believes that his actions were weak, and given the character of the man, that seems highly unlikely. So, what I'm trying to get at here is that focusing so heavily on Trump's lying in such cases is actually bad advocacy, because it's a relatively easy accusation to refute if you're in the Trump camp. Instead, if you read the whole of Woodward's book, as I've just done, you get an overwhelming sense of the utter incompetence of Trump as a leader and the realisation that he is quite simply, as Woodward puts it, the wrong man for the job. So I think one way of conceiving the argument in my book is that we need to go beyond emotional accusations of lying and consider more rationally what's going on in terms of a more complex economy of truthfulness.
1: Right. So your your book, it's titled all, all Bush all excuse me, all bullshit and lies with a question mark. And let me just note to our readers that, as we'll see in the interview, bullshit has become a technical term in philosophy of language for a certain kind of speech act. This isn't just splashing colorful language uh, into the title of, of your book. But so your book is titled All Bullshit and Lies with a Question Mark. And as you've just uh, suggested, it's not actually just about bullshit and lies. What you're wanting to do is to have us move beyond a uh, focus in, um, on lying in particular uh, as the, uh, the exclusive concern with whether uh, a speech act is uh, sincere or not, as, as well as um, bullshit. So maybe for our, our listeners, a place to start would be what is bullshit? What is a lie? And then you can help us understand why you want to move beyond them to a a more wider encompassing framework.
0: Yes, of course. Um, Just a little aside here when you mentioned about um, the bullshit being a technical philosophical term, um, I did have some issues getting bullshit into the title. Um, so the the initial reaction was oh no it's a swear word you can't put that in and I had to go through the whole process of explaining that no it's a philosophical term and so on and so on but I do come across that uh, on a number of occasions but um, it's all quite fun so yeah so um, let's start with lying because lying is is a thing that's been studied for millennia mainly in philosophy and there have been hundreds of different definitions but the, core, the one core element that almost all contemporary researchers agree on is that the liar must have a false belief. In other words, the liar must believe that what they're saying is false. So if Trump tweets the Chinese invented global warming, but he actually believes that they didn't, then he's lying. But if a quiz master asks, asks the contestant who invented global warming and the contestant, perhaps influenced by Trump, replies the Chinese, they can't be lying. Clearly, they want to get the answer right, so they can have no motive to say what they believe is false. We say they're simply mistaken, and there are several empirical studies showing that false belief is, in fact, the central element of lying. Now, that's lying, but in the 1980s, the American philosopher Harry Frankfurt pointed out that not all speakers are concerned about the truth value of their statements. Some speakers are indifferent to whether or not what they're saying is true. So he was thinking particularly people like advertisers and political campaigners and so on. And in in this case, we can't say that they're lying because they don't know themselves whether what they're saying is true or false. So Frankfurt calls the product of this indifference bullshit. But for reasons that become evident, I call this bullshitting. Importantly, people generally know that they're bullshitting. At some level, they know that they actually don't know or haven't bothered to find out. In my book, I give the example of a cold caller for a legal firm who calls randomly and starts the call by saying, I believe you've had an accident in the last few years. The caller doesn't know whether or not the respondent has, a, has had an accident in the last few years, but equally she doesn't know that it's false, and indeed she's hoping it's true, and so she's not lying. The point, as Frankfurt notes, is that the speaker is focusing on the rhetorical goal. When the caller strikes lucky and happens upon someone who has had an accident in the last few years then the caller might think that the caller was informed and therefore more trustworthy. So Frankfurt's notion of bullshitting, like lying, misleading and withholding information, is intentionally insincere and deliberately strategic. Unlike those other insincere discourse strategies, though, bullshitting is not focused on concealing specific information, such as that COVID-19 is deadly and to be feared. As Frankfurt points out, the only thing it hides is that the speaker doesn't actually know what the truth is. So Russian disinformation campaigns are often at their core examples of this type of bullshitting. Russian bots are designed to pump out messages that will provoke their intended audience. The relative veracity of the information conveyed is entirely irrelevant. But in so many cases in our so-called post-truth world, the speaker is not actually aware that they don't know. In fact, they're convinced that they do know because they read it on Facebook or watched it on Fox News or heard the president himself say it. And if such a speaker asserts that COVID escaped from a lab in Wuhan because a celebrity they respected tweeted this, we can't say that they're lying because they truly believe what they've read. But nor are they bullshitting because they think they do know. So in this case, I claim that they're not intentionally lying or bullshitting, but inadvertently producing bullshit. So bullshit, as I define it, is basically an evidentially groundless claim. A claim that drinking bleach will cure COVID is an obvious example. Um, Another is that the MMR vaccine causes autism. The point is that these claims are not just wrong in a way that that a quiz contestant might get, get things wrong, but that a minimal amount of investigation, such as Googling or looking up on Wikipedia, should dispel them immediately. Now, the distinction of bullshit from bullshitting is crucial because it opens up an entire dimension of untruthfulness that has essentially been ignored by both philosophers and linguists. To see this, we need to ask what's wrong with bullshit. Unlike with lying, misleading, withholding information and even bullshitting, the issue is not that the speaker is being insincere, it's that they're being irresponsible in forming, conveying and or retaining their beliefs about the world. In other words, they're being epistemically irresponsible. What's wrong with bullshit is not that it's factually wrong, but that the speakers made no effort to get things right. Now I'm going to stop there because I think you want to return to mm-hmm, the issue mm-hmm. of epistemic responsibility later in the interview.
1: Yeah, we, we can, let's pick that up later, but let's um, keep a focus on the, the big picture here before we get into some of these, these details. So we have these distinctions here between bullshitting and lying as two kinds of speech acts that have been uh, considered. And you're, Thesis in this book is that there are other kinds of speech acts, um, either strategies, intentional strategies, or, uh, as you put it, pathologies, sort of ways of um, of contributing to discourse which is flawed uh, that we haven't considered. So maybe you can talk now a little bit about your framework um, that you're calling trust in capital letters, um, how this fits in both in terms of uh, some of these existing analyses that you've talked about and also some disciplinary divisions. You talked about philosophy of language. You've talked about linguistics. Um, What kind of work is TRUST doing? Does it fall into a disciplinary category? So maybe just talk a little bit about the TRUST framework.
0: Sure. Um, So TRUST is an acronym that stands for Trust-Related Untruthfulness in Situated Text. So there's, there's three parts of that. Firstly, I focus on untruthfulness rather than deception, and this is the, the first um, point where I differ from uh, most of the work on untruthfulness, on because most work in ling- linguistic psychology and philosophy focuses on deception. So, for example, there's a massive literature in psychology on how we deceive and on verbal and nonverbal cues to deception. But... As we've seen, epistemically responsible discourse is not intentionally deceptive. So, if you genuinely believe that vaccines cause autism, you're not trying to deceive someone by telling them they do. Um, but you're still falling short in terms of your commitment to truthfulness. So, it, so the deception that—that's—I mean, I started out looking, thinking I was doing work on deception, but then realized it just didn't didn't work in terms of in terms of the way the framework was developing. But even on the insincere side, side of things, a number of philosophers, particularly recently, have shown that we can lie without an intention to deceive. Um, Sorensen, for example, gives the example of an Iraqi doctor denying during the, the, the one of the Iraq wars denying that there were soldiers in what is meant to be a civilian hospital, while he knows that the journalist is talking. He's talking to he can see perfectly well that many of the patients in the ward are wearing uniforms. The, top, the doctor there is putting on record what the regime is forcing him to say, but he can't possibly be intending to deceive the journalist. Um, and I think there's the much more uh, examples of this sort of much more common than many researchers think. So even even when you're looking at um, insincere strategies, the deception is not always um, involved with untruthfulness. So that's the untruthfulness side of things. The... The second aspect of the framework is is that it's meant to be um, applied to untruthfulness not in invented examples but in situated text, by which I mean simply naturally occurring discourse. And this is where the linguistics and specifically discourse analysis come into play. So I look closely at the language for evidence of different forms of untruthfulness where much of the philosophical work, uh, it talks in the abstract and uses invented examples and so on. But this is also an acknowledgment that the common in discourse analysis that context is everything. You need to take into account the total speech act in the total speech situation, as Austin put it. So thirdly, um, and crucially, there's the, the trust-related part um, that gives a framework as acronym trust. And this brings in the ethical dimension. So um, it brings in in ethics. Because we're particularly concerned with untruthfulness when it breaches our trust that others are being truthful. To be frank, I find that, you know, that there's the, the masses and masses and masses of work on the definition of lie and lying. is it, It's just ultimately a bit dry. It doesn't really take us anywhere. So, um and, it, and it's, it's clear that, as indicated in Chapter 4 of the book, there are many contexts in which on truthfulness, truthfulness is not an issue at all, as in fiction or joking, or where there's a superficial breach of interactional trust that's considered justified, as in polite lying, for example. So identifying these cases where a speaker's default commitment to truthfulness has been justifiably suspended is an important part of the framework, but it's in the light of excluding some such cases from moral judgment. Now, yes, yeah, so the, the, this brings in the difficult question of where I see myself fitting in in terms of the, the different disciplines. Well, first and foremost, I consider myself a linguist, and I think you can see that in the close attention to, what, to what's actually said in the, and in my categorizations of discourse. But I do something that's pretty much taboo in linguistics, which is that I stray into the ethical dimension of things. Linguists, on the whole, think that ethics because it's normative, just should be kept entirely out of linguistics, which which is often seen as a social scientific enterprise. So, um, Basically, I think that an account of untruthfulness that doesn't at least try to deal with the ethical side of things is not going to be very useful in the real world, in which we find ourselves making judgments primarily about the untruthfulness of others. Um, so... Although I'm not a philosopher, let alone an expert in ethics, but at least I've tried to provide an integrated account rather than simply bracketing out ethics.
1: Yeah, and so maybe can you say just a little bit about how you came to this topic? If you are a linguist by, uh, by training, how, how did you come into this project, which, as you described it, really spans across several different uh, disciplinary divisions?
0: Yes, of course. Well, my main research area is actually forensic linguistics which is the interface between language and law and i was writing a book on lying in the legal process which included topics like perjury in court and lying by police officers and interrogation um and this was in this was in uh, i was doing this particularly in 2016 and so what happened is it's basically that 2016 happened And by 2016, I mean first the EU referendum in the UK in June, which led to the disastrous decision to leave the European Union, and then the voting in of Trump. What struck me with both political campaigns is not so much the lying, though there was undoubtedly lying in both cases, but the complete unhinging of political discourse from questions of truth and falsity. So the leaders of the Leave campaign in the UK denigrated experts and evidence and traded in populist slogans. And it struck me that all the work that I was doing online, which made sense in the epistemically controlled environment of the legal process, didn't help a great deal in understanding the type of untruthfulness that dominated the Leave and Trump campaigns. So I just felt driven to try to understand better what was actually going on. Um, and at first, I tried to keep this uh, 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 as a book on untruthfulness in the legal process but then it kept expanding to the point where, and expanding to the point where I had to take the decision to focus on the framework itself and put the legal applications aside for the moment. So I'm intending to go back to the those legal applications, but at a later date.
1: Well, yeah. So let's maybe think about that. You, who do you hope might use the this heuristic? Could someone like a, a, a legal expert use it? Uh, a journalist? Um, ordinary people who are on Facebook, hanging out, talking to their you know, elderly relatives who have posted some link. How do you think this heuristic could be used?
0: Yeah, so the, um, the trust heuristic presents the trust framework as a series of sequential steps that will ensure the user considers as many aspects as possible of the putatively untruthful claim before arriving at a judgment. Now, there is a bit of a clash. The book's obviously an academic monograph, and because it's an academic monograph, I have to go into quite a bit of theoretical detail. But the heuristic itself is quite simple, and I think that um, particularly even when I've disseminated in in a more popular form, it can certainly be followed by journalists and ordinary people. Um, Shall I quickly go through the the different steps of the heuristic? Okay, so in a nutshell, you, you first have to consider what's being claimed. So trust deals mostly with factually significant claims that can be falsified. Like COVID has led to more deaths per million in the US than in the UK, which is currently false, but um, the US is catching up quick. Now, if it's an opinion or a value judgment, is not accessible to a trust analysis, although I have something else to say about it touch later. So if someone says with respect to COVID, we have to privilege the economy over saving lives, we might find that a deplorable opinion. But if the opinion is genuinely held, then untruthfulness simply doesn't come into play. Just a different, different perspective. So, if the, the if this claim is factually significant, the next step is to consider the evidence that it is false. Um, we can know that people are lying sometimes because they contradict themselves. But generally, the um, the only way to abandon truthfulness is if you can show that the, uh, the claim is false. And this is the step which fact-checking sites like PolitiFact and FactCheck.org are particularly good at. They, they they become very good at coming to conclusion that a claim is false. But concluding that a claim is false says nothing about the nature of that untruthfulness. PolitiFact, for example, has an interesting range of labels for the putatively untruthful claims they test. So they've got true, mostly true, half true, mostly false, False and Pants on Fire. Now, now the first five concern objective truth and falsity, but Pants on Fire attempts to go beyond objective falsity to subjective untruthfulness. But their definition of Pants on Fire, clearly implying lying, is that, quote, the statement is not accurate and makes a ridiculous claim, end quote. But just because a claim is ridiculous doesn't make it into a lie or even necessarily dishonest, dishonest at all. Intelligent design makes ridiculous claims about our origins, but its proponents are not lying. Even the believers in the totally ludicrous QAnon conspiracy theories are generally not lying. They find it incredible, but these people actually believe that rubbish. So um, before we go on to dishonesty, though, the next step in the heuristic is to consider whether the speaker was justified in suspending their normal commitment to truthfulness. So they could be joking, as Trump claimed about falsely, I think, about his tweet that the Chinese invented global warming, or they could be justifiably downplaying a dangerous situation to avoid panic that would make things worse. So you have to consider. I mean, I, I, you could you could consider that that step of justified untruthfulness um, at any point, but the idea is to is that if you consider it at this point, you can if you say yes, okay, this is clearly justified in those circumstances, there's no point in going on Look at sincerity and irresponsibility and so on. So if you haven't, if you haven't established that, yes, it was all quite clear, and it would have to be is quite clear that this, this, um, this kind um, of truth was justified, then you go on to the next step in the heuristic, which is to ask whether the speaker believed that what they were saying or implying was false whether they were intentionally trying to deceive or pursue some other deliberate goal. And this is where we consider whether they were lying or misleading or withholding or bullshitting and the various types of, of those strategies. And if the analysis, analysis suggests they were, then we consider whether they were doing so willfully thereby breaching the trust of the interlocutor. Um, now, and this is a key point, in very many cases... We can't arrive at a judgment that the speaker was being dishonest. We have but you always have this problem with lying that it, it because it comes down to whether the speaker has a false belief, it's it's quite difficult to get inside someone's head and establish whether they believe something or not. So very often we can't rarely know they their life but this is where this this next step is is very useful and that's to consider whether the speaker was being epistemically irresponsible even if they weren't necessarily being dishonest and this is the step at which we check for dogma distortion and bullshit of which i'll say more in a, in a bit and if we do find bullshit for example then we need to consider whether producing that bullshit arose from negligence which again i think i'll talk about later so the next um, and the penultimate step is is if we find that the speaker writer was indeed willfully insincere or epistemically negligent, then the next step in the US is to ask how culpable the speaker is in producing that untruthful claim. Now, people tend to restrict themselves to talking about the harm or the, the putative harm that could be caused by the untruthfulness, but I suggest that there are actually a number of different dimensions that you need to take into account, such as the motive, the power of the speaker, the vulnerability of the audience, as well as the potential harm, and then the final step is simply to come up with some form of overall judgment of the act of untruthfulness. So that's the basic heuristic, and I think that you know it's actually um, expressed by that. It's not really that difficult to apply it. So I think it would be it would be great if journalists could apply it, but also people in many other professions and. Ordinary people who just want to get a better handle on the way mm-hmm. the economy of truth works.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk a bit more about the aspect of epistemic responsibility because I think that's one of the things that's um, probably uh, sen- sort of central to the diagnosis here. When someone is is uttering something which is, um, for instance, uh, false, um, there's a question as to whether someone has failed in their responsibilities towards discovering that that thing, that claim is false. So one question is, um, how can you fail in that responsibility? What exactly uh, is our responsibility towards discovering whether a claim we're making is true or false? And then a second question we can talk about is, does that mean you have done something uh, ethically suspect if if you've failed in your responsibilities? But First, let's think about what is epistemic responsibility here.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, I'd like to just go back one little step here, um, which is that uh, I think we need to understand epistemic responsibility in, the, in, in terms of our default commitment to truthfulness and communication that's uh, grounded in both evolutionary and child development. Now, there's a pretty strong consensus in both psychology and philosophy that people Will assume that we're telling the truth unless circumstances suggest otherwise. Um, um, however, the, the corresponding commitment by the speaker to tell the truth uh, has generally been understood in terms of sincerity. So there's a commitment to saying what we believe, as in Paul Grice's first maxim of quality do not say what you believe to be false and this is you know uh, overwhelmingly and and this is where i get the most resistance from from both philosophers and linguists overwhelmingly there's the belief that no truthfulness is just about saying what you believe to be true um but i argue in chapter 2 of the book along with the british philosopher bernard williams that this commitment must evolve not just saying what we believe is the case but also taking responsibility to get things right. So you know, I just wanted to, to, to point out there that this is quite a controversial move, but I but i you know sort of argue at length that it's an important one, particularly for understanding that the the, the predominant post-truth world types of untruthfulness. So anyway, so so the paper responsibility is basically taking care, in the simplest terms, is taking care in the way We form, convey, and retain our beliefs about the world. In short, it's a commitment to get things right. As William says, we need to make some form of investigative investment in forming our beliefs rather than just plucking them out of thin air. But I also stress that we need, it's not just about the forming the beliefs, it's also about how you convey those beliefs. So we need to indicate how confident we are that they are true, so the area of evidentials. and also. And perhaps most importantly in terms of dogma, when we hear convincing counter evidence, we need to be ready to drop our beliefs. Now, as in all aspects of the economy of truthfulness, how careful we need to be in making our assertions depends entirely on the context. If you're down the pub gossiping with your mates, you don't want one of them fact checking on the phone everything you say. I think we all know these people who do and it can be quite annoying If you're the American president tweeting to the world, on the other hand, you have a very heavy burden of epistemic responsibility, even if you're doing it at two o'clock in the morning. So you failed. So in short, you fail in your epistemic responsibility if the effort you put in to getting your facts right in the first place in communicating them fairly and being open to abandoning them isn't proportionate to what's required in the context. Which then leads to your second question about the ethical side of epistemic irresponsibility. Um, so most of the time in everyday conversation, epistemic irresponsibility is simply an intellectual vice that impedes effective and responsible inquiry. It's, it's, it's a bit like other uh, intellectual vices that, that make it more difficult to arrive at, at the truth and so on but there's no I would wouldn't suggest there's a moral dimension to them however I argue that it can become morally wrong when certain conditions hold that make it not just irresponsible but negligent and here this is where my my sort of legal background comes in and think of negligence in that, in, really in that legal sense as being something criminally wrong. But, uh, but here I'm, I'm borrowing it for so sort of saying it's morally wrong. So there's basically three conditions that, that have to uh, apply. So first, a speaker must have a duty of epistemic care. In other words, it, it must be um, part of their professional, institutional or societal role that they should be careful with the facts. So journalists, politicians, doctors, teachers, and most other professionals have this specific duty of epistemic care. Parents also have that in terms of their children from the societal sense. Comedians and conversationalists don't, for example. Secondly, a negligent speaker fails to investigate sufficiently in accordance with that duty that holds in the context. And thirdly, they fail to hedge their commitment to their claims in accordance with the evidence. Now, I think I can give you, it might help to give you a key example from the book, which is particularly timely because it involves a Trump tweet sent out just a few weeks before Election Day in 2016. So basically where we are now in terms of the 2020 elections. So at a time when it was paramount to maintain public trust in the voting system, Trump tweeted the following. Of course, I'm not going to try and do his, his accent. Of course, there's large scale voter fraud happening on and before Election Day. Why do Republican leaders deny what is going on? So naive. So, just to be clear about the facts, there has never been large scale voter fraud in the US, particularly not in recent history. This is complete bullshit. And I argue in the book that it's probably technically bullshit rather than deliberately lying. So let's assume, just for a moment, that we have a case of bullshit, and now we want to decide whether it's not just epistemically irresponsible, but also negligent. So, first condition, Trump, as a presidential candidate, clearly has a strong duty of epistemic care towards the electorate. Politicians are notorious for not following that duty, but that doesn't mean that they don't have that epistemic duty. The second condition, failure to investigate sufficiently in accordance with the context. Trump or his advisers seem to have grossly misinterpreted the available evidence. A Pew research report showed that there were approximately 24 million voter registration inaccuracies, including dead people listed as voters. But that report makes it absolutely clear that there's no suggestion that these could have possibly led to voter fraud. But Trump made it clear in a campaign speech on that very same day that he he tweeted that he he understood these inaccuracies to lead to fraud. So given the context of the presidential election, this represents an extraordinarily insufficient investigation either by him or his team. The third condition, failure to hedge his claims in accordance with the evidence, well, he, he simply presupposes that what he's saying is true. So he says, of course, this is the case. He says, deny, and the presupposition of the verb, deny what is going on. Presuppose it must have gone on. And he even makes an ad hominem attack on his fellow Republican leaders for not believing this voter fraud conspiracy theory. It's so naive. So he's wildly overconfident in his claims. And this tweet doesn't just show negligence, but it also shows a high degree of culpability in seriously breaching the trust of his readers. So Trump was in a position of great institutional power and communicating with, ba- with his base, many of whom are poorly educated and thus vulnerable to manipulation. And the breach is seriously aggravated because of potential harm in undermining democratic institutions and leading, as Bob Woodward puts it, mm-hmm. to the wrong man mm-hmm. for the job becoming president.
1: Yeah, so that, that example and what you've just said really, I think, sharpens the the focus in your framework of discourse context and that what you're concerned with in this book is not just a sort of um, abstract consideration of what uh, what bullshit or lying or other kinds of speech acts are um, from some conjured uh, sort of thought experiment examples, but you're really concerned with being able to look at Examples in the world and in the taking seriously people's particular roles, their their audiences, uh, their institutional situation and, and, and so on. Um, so that's that's a very helpful example. One one connected thought here, if I may, is so with that example of Trump's tweet, sometimes he'll come back and he'll say, uh, well I was I was speaking uh, ironically I was speaking metaphorically now uh, I'm not sure that he said that with this particular case or not but generally speaking um, is it possible to use the framework that you're uh, employing in this book to evaluate ironic or metaphorical language can can we hold people responsible even for ironic statements that are, um, untruthful or insincere does that does that even make sense to say you're being insincere in your I- ironic statements
0: yeah absolutely um so here we talk talking, oh, just just by the way on on the um voter fraud tweet um i think there's pretty strong evidence that um that he was uh serious and i don't think he's ever he's ever claimed and and one of it, the um piece of evidence that is the fact that he set yeah, up a commission took on, on, on uh on voter it. fraud after he other got other out. cases so he, he has for it, sure it but more case of, yeah. of bullshit than that uh, but mm-hmm. um no yeah yeah, yeah, the, 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 um, the, the Chinese invented global warming, claimed about a year later that he was just joking, that, uh, and he has own yeah, other cases. So, yes, in case of figurative language, that's a really interesting one. Um, so, so here we're basically talking about cases where the speaker believes or claims that truthfulness is not in play. And there are two types of contexts in, in which truthfulness is not in play, or more formally, where the speaker is not warranting the truth of their statements. The first type is where a suspension of truthfulness is prescribed by the genre. For example, we know that in reading fiction or watching movies, we need to suspend our disbelief. We enter into a world not governed by the rules of assertion. But the other type of case where truthfulness isn't in play is when we explicitly indicate in our performance to our interlocutors that what we're saying right now is not to be taken as warranting the truth. And the classic case is is figurative language, but you can also do this through intonation or winking meaningfully and so on. So take the um, hyperbole. Say um, the, the, the thing I used to say when I was a kid. How many millions of times have I told you not to exaggerate? Now... If truthfulness were in play, this would be a case of exaggeration, which in in my framework is a type of lying about degree. But the exaggeration is so excessive here that it cues to the listener that you're momentarily suspending your commitment to truthfulness and and are, in fact, just joking. Now, irony is much more complex. Um, I can only really touch on this, but in straight irony, or what we might call straight irony, You say something, but make it clear to the audience that you mean the opposite. A good example is Mark Antony's funeral funeral oration in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. So Antony intersperses the chorus, "For Brutus is an honorable man," with statements that indicate to the funeral goers that Brutus is in fact anything but honorable. So the funeral goers eventually pick up that Antony is being ironic in calling Brutus honorable. But interestingly, Shakespeare. I think, also intends the theatre audience to understand that Antony's irony is actually false, that Antony knows that Brutus is indeed an an honourable man and so is trying to falsely convey um, the irony and suggest that he's not. So basically, irony uh, can't be justified as a performed suspension of truthfulness when it's deliberately concealing the truth. And I think that, that so false irony, basically, which is quite common, is definitely um, is a type of um, insincerity, uh, and and so is um, just like lying, effectively. And irony also can't be justified when the listener can't reasonably be expected to register the suspension. For example, autistic children—something is I know from the the, the forensic world—autistic children, adults are well known to have difficulty distinguishing literal and non-literal language. So irony can be particularly malicious in legal contexts, such as police interrogation or or cross-examination in court, where the suspect or witness is a child, autistic or or subnormal intelligence. In such cases, the police or trial lawyers are being willfully insincere. So you see cross-examiners in court, they would deliberately be ironic with a child, uh, knowing that the child... um, So that that, that type of... um, use of irony is is, is really indefensible and, and it could be analyzed in exactly the same way as uh, more literal language
1: hmm. so you you've mentioned here some strategies such as withholding uh, concealing hedging other sorts of things and these these suggest uh, often that speakers are are being fairly intentional in in their use of language in order to conceal things that they know and, and would be relevant to raise in a certain context. But you also use the metaphor of a, of a pathology to characterize some kinds of, of discourse. So um, why do you use this language? Is this is this the idea that there's something uh, unintentional and it's just infecting uh, our language? What, what kind of pathologies are you diagnosing in in speakers?
0: Yeah, right. So that's a very good question. Um and it made me it made me uh, wonder again about whether I should be using the term pathology, but um because figurative language is often used um loosely and can easily be misconstrued and is is potentially dangerous. And I'm 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 concerned that people could pick up that term and use it wrongly. So I did hesitate a good deal before I jumped into um the metaphor of pathology. The problem I faced was how to convey both the contrast with the discourse strategies of lying, misleading, and withholding and the fact that they result from irresponsible, discursive practices. So I'm trying to use pathology as strictly as possible. I'm not using it in the medical sense of the study of the cause of disease, of course, but I'm also not using it in the loose sense of behaviour that's extreme and can't be controlled. As an example, she's almost pathologically jealous. So I'm trying to use it in 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 a very common dictionary sense of where pathology is the manifestation of disease, so it's not the disease itself, but a superficial manifestation of that disease. Now, I realised in thinking um, uh, thinking about this question that in the context of discourse, it would be better to use the term disorder rather than disease. I think to talk about sort of discourse in terms of disease, it, it, it's it a bit out there, but I think you can talk about discourse in terms of disorder. Um, And so the underlying disorder in epistemically responsible discourse is the epistemic irresponsibility itself, is the failure to take care when forming, conveying, and retaining our beliefs about the world. When we fail to take epistemic care, this can then result in the manifestations or pathologies of dogma distortion and bullshit. So in using the metaphor pathology to describe dogma distortion and bullshit, I'm trying to stress two things. Firstly, that they result from a disorder in discourse. Orderly, civil discourse in particular should be epistemically responsible. And secondly, that unlike lying, misleading and withholding, dogma, distortion and bullshit are not deliberate strategies employed in pursuing our goals, but simply happen to discourse because of the underlying disorder in the speaker's mind. Um, So the... um, so th- Now, um, there is a, a – I think it's also we can talk about a diagnosis and, and a cure in the medical.
1: Yeah, so you, you're saying there's a, a, a disorder in sort of both at the individual level and at a social level you're identifying here. So maybe we can think about the, the individual level and the connection with um, people's epistemic um, sort of uh, abilities. Um it, it, yeah so 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 how would you identify what's going on in a disordered individual um such that they're manifesting these kinds of pathologies in their in their speech
0: i think in in, in um in terms uh, we can we can think in terms of an analogy with um COVID here perhaps so no one just no one intentionally sets out to contract COVID, but if we behave irresponsibly by not socially distancing, wearing masks or washing hands, we're far more likely to pick it up. Assembly, similarly, speakers don't usually strategically set out to be dogmatic, to distort the facts or to say things that are completely ungrounded. But if they are irresponsible in the way they form, convey and retain their beliefs, they can end up inadvertently producing dogma distortion or bullshit. Of course, just as most people pick up COVID without, without having behaved irresponsibly, so you can get your facts wrong without having been epistemically irresponsible. Um, but basically, I'm saying that the, um, you know, the, 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 the more we take epistemic care, the less we'll be dogmatic, inadvertently distort the world, and make groundless false claims. So I'm not quite sure that's the answer
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's helpful. So, so, um, obviously your, your book is focusing primarily on the, uh, what, you know, strategies and or pathologies in speech, but underlying them, uh, there is sort of individual virtues, societal virtues with regard to how we, um, access the world, how we come to check one another's, um, beliefs and so on that, that would um, impact how, how, our, how our discourse is, is shaped. Um, so maybe connected to that then is this idea of epistemic partisanship that is important in the book. So this is a, a term that you coin, um, which characterizes, tell me if I've gotten this right, the way that people either evaluate or, or fail to evaluate claims based on whether it fits their preconceived position. So I think this fits with this question of whether people are being epistemically responsible. So you can be epistemically um, partisan for political reasons, but also other kinds of um, partisan uh, associations that we might have. So maybe, first of all, tell me if I've gotten this right, uh, add on to the understanding of that concept. And then why do you think this is a danger for contemporary discourse as you've identified it in the book?
0: Yeah. So the, um, epistemic partisanship is the, the bending of knowledge itself to one's own partisan interests. So basically a claim is true only to the extent that it's held by or supports one's ideological party and is false to the extent that it fails to align with the party perspective. So going back to the, um, the example I used at the uh, the beginning of uh, COVID of um, Trump talking about the, um, the deadliness of of COVID and then downplaying and so on. So when I said that that was I said that if you are in the anti-Trump camp, you won't question the fact that he was lying in that case. Uh, if you're in the Trump camp, you won't question the fact that he wasn't lying. So we don't we don't it, it, we don't really consider. Uh, the the truth value of statements at all, um, provided they support a pre-existing narrative. And I think the, <clears throat> sorry, I think the, um, what's interesting is, and I've only really been thinking about this um, very recently, is the fact that in writing this book, I've become very aware of my own epistemic partisanship. So, for example, I was very upset by the result of the EU referendum in 2016, and I belonged to various anti-Brexit organisations and got caught up in anti-Brexit discussions and Twitter feeds and so on. And I knew knew no one personally who had voted to leave the EU and couldn't possibly understand what on earth could have driven someone to vote to cut our ties with Europe. I'm now sure both that I was receiving highly filtered information and that I was being epistemically partisan in judging the veracity. Of that information, and the same goes for Trump. What I did at the beginning of this interview suggesting that Trump may not actually have been lying in this case, I'm not sure it would have been possible a few years ago, I would have just accepted the cherry pick quotes, accusations of lying, and let this bias confirming information be added to my picture of Trump now. So don't get me wrong. I think Trump is the most incompetent president the US has ever had, uh, and he certainly doesn't get soft treatment from me in the book. But I think some on the left, in particular, have entirely lost the capacity to form rational judgments with respect to what Trump says and does. And I, you know, this 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 inability to actually entertain the possibility that your enemies might actually have a point, or that they're not necessarily lying. Uh, is is it is, is makes it very difficult to to have a sort of civil discourse. So one thing that we can all do, and it's quite simple in theory but difficult in practice, is when we receive information that confirms our biases, just try to consciously challenge that information. Is the claim actually well-grounded in evidence or does it just fit into our pre-existing narrative? So similarly, if someone we don't like is accused of lying, just look at what they actually said and imagine the same thing was said by our own heroes, but we still think it was lying. Because being accused of lying when we know we haven't lied is mortifying and turns you violently against the accuser. So the absolutely worst thing you can do if you're trying to to find some sort of agreement or harmony on anything is to accuse the other person of lying. But on the other hand, and, and this is the other side of, of, of things in terms of partnership, is is don't let Trump and others get away with saying oh it was just a retweet I don't necessarily agree with what was said. If you retweet you take epistemic responsibility for that tweet particularly if you, you're the US president so I think there's that we need much more we need to be much more um, take the, these these um, uh, discourse that follows much more seriously and, and the ethical side of them um, you know, you can be culpably ignorant, um, uh, and and it and it's important that we that we do call out that type of culpable ignorance.
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I mean, your your book raised lots of uh, questions, and I have plenty of things that uh, to to follow up on, but we don't, we don't have that much time left. So um, let me just ask you on that last point that you're you're making here. You've written a, a, a an academic book, which is robust in its treatment of a range of disciplines, a range of literature, and as you're saying, it's for it's for an ac- academic audience. It's not um, intended to uh, sort of convince uh, ordinary people to use the the sort of trust heuristic. But I, I guess one question that just comes to mind from what you've been saying is. Uh, it's in some ways easier to say binary: uh, someone's lying or they're not lying. Um, there's a sort of um, a fact, that like you were saying, with the fact checking. You can say this is this is true, this is false, this is mostly true. But uh, the trust heuristic is, in some ways, uh, much more complex. Even if it's it's easy to um, to follow the steps. Um, I guess my my question is. Given that you've looked at so much political discourse and so many examples uh, of people evaluating one another, um, right. how optimistic are you that this kind of shift could uh, occur, that people are able to uh, sort of complicate their notions of, of speech so that we can evaluate each other a bit more, um, not so much charitably, but more um, with a bit more sophistication, perhaps?
0: well i 'm an eternal optimist, um, so I think it is possible to shift people's opinions and their approaches. Um, I could think we can see in the last twenty years we've seen quite profound shifts in people's attitudes to certain things like um, race and sexuality and so on and um, and, I, and i so I, th- I do think it's possible to um to develop a more sophisticated understanding of untruthfulness i think you know my hope is that in 20 years time we'll look back and think gosh you know how could we have been so naive as to just think in terms of of, of lying and not lying uh, and make accusations you know, sort of these sort of simple accusations of someone lying and implying that they're wrong and so on and not and not seeing the the a much fuller picture." Um, of course, you know what what's needed, and and this is what I need to to work on is to is sort of disseminate these ideas, um, you know, through the education system, through journalism, and so on, um, because it, it it it's undoubtedly the case that you know there's, there's simply not we don't have a, a sophisticated enough understanding of untruthfulness, and particularly, you know, I mean, even you know this thing, okay, call out lying, but. The, the the fact that so often lying we actually justify lying. So even saying that something was a lie, even if you even if you accept that um that Trump's downplaying of the um the deadliness of COVID was was a lie, even then, as I said, well you know, that in, in some contexts that that can be considered a um you know, consequentially justified. So it, it's just, you know, the the economy of trivialism never is never sort of it should never be understood in these binary terms or that's a lie. And therefore it's wrong. Um, which of course brings in um, Kant's uh, famous um, belief that, that lying was already, always wrong. So to even live in murder, it's a lie even to a murder at the door is wrong. But I mean, most, most people nowadays think that that's absurd. Um, and yeah, so I, I'm not, yeah, I'm an yeah. optimist.
1: Okay, great. Well, so what are you working on now that this book is is out and in the hands of of the of the public the academic public at least uh what's what's your next project
0: well i have um two other book projects in um various stages of completion um one is a one is the is the sort of the legal applications of the trust framework and the other is a um is actually a theory of forensic discourse where i i i take up um aristotle's um um forensic rhetoric and apply it to the contemporary legal process um so that seems seems quite different in a way um and a final project i've been involved in for a few years is uh on the um, arrogance and humility and debate this is an interdisciplinary project with philosophers and psychologists um, and we've been we've we've uh, we've uh, had um, many groups of students involved in debate and then have been analyzing the discourse for cues to 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 um, arrogance and humility
1: Very interesting. So you have a a wide, wide range of of projects here, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, it's quite difficult to juggle, but...
1: That sounds great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Chris, for your time today. Um,
0: Well, thank um... you, Malcolm. It was was, uh, very enjoyable. Um, I always say to students who are about to go to the the deviver that they should um, try to enjoy it because it's not often in life that you actually have a chance to talk about your own work and, and have someone willing to listen so um (laughs) that is is true yeah no
1: i I really really enjoyed it and uh our listeners can take a look on online we'll have a link up to your book and they can they can pick it up if they want to want to read more of course there's a lot we didn't get a chance to talk about in this uh this short interview so they can can dive in for themselves so thanks very much
0: excellent thank you
1: bye-bye